Braving violent police repression, more than a half a million workers in South Korea recently went on strike in a major show of force. The unfolding political and social struggles in South Korea will have a far-reaching impact not only for the people on the peninsula, but have a major impact on regional politics in the Asia-Pacific region. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on the Socialist Program. We go beyond the superficial to understand the social and political struggles dominating the world today. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Korean Peninsula was divided at the 38th parallel in 1945. The northern half of Korea was under the control of Soviet occupation forces, and the southern half was under the control of U.S. occupation forces. 76 years later, the Korean Peninsula is still divided. The war that was fought between North and South Korea between 1950 and 1953 has not technically ended. An armistice agreement signed on July 27, 1953, ended military hostilities, but no peace treaty has been signed even today. The people in South Korea lived under a de facto dictatorship between 1945 and the end of 1987. It was the movement of young people in South Korea, students and workers in the 1970s and 1980s, that created the basis for the introduction of democratic elections. Even today, South Korean democracy is limited and faces many challenges. Now there is a rising tide of labor activism demanding not only economic, and social justice for workers, but an expansion of democracy. We are joined by Ju Hyun Park. They are a writer and member of Noda Toll for Korean Community Development. You can check out their latest article titled, Half a Million South Korean Workers Walk Off Jobs in General Strike, and that can be found at truthout.org. Ju Hyun Park, welcome to the Socialist Program. Hi, Brian. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for joining us. We're talking and we've been talking in the recent weeks about a new wave of labor strikes and job actions here in the United States, something of a labor resurgence, of course, starting from a pretty low point because the labor movement has been in retreat in the United States for decades. But these are encouraging signs. Let's just talk about what it's like and what it's been like for Korean workers What led to this general strike? Well, let's start there, and then we'll get into some of the specific issues that are animating workers to take this kind of job action. Definitely. So as huge as it was, this one-day general strike is coming after a larger strike wave that has been building throughout the pandemic. South Korea has been seeing mass layoffs, big corporate bailouts, and deteriorating work conditions in general that have been pushing a lot of workers to fight back. 
Workers in South Korea have been hurting since before the pandemic. Almost half of them don't have a full-time contract, which in Korea is called irregular employment. Irregular workers make about half the pay of full-time employees, sometimes even in the same company doing the same work. They're also legally excluded from basic labor protections like accident compensation. South Korea gets a lot of praise for having things like national health insurance, but there are still huge disparities in access to basic services. Millions of people are living very precarious lives or really just barely making ends meet. With that in mind, the strike had 15 pretty complex demands that range from a four-day work week to nationalizing major industries and even turning 50% of the country's housing stock into public housing. We can sum them all up into three categories. The first is to abolish irregular work and extend labor protections to all workers. The second is to give workers joint decision-making power with management when it comes to economic restructuring decisions. This is to give workers more power to fight layoffs. And the third is to nationalize key industries like automobile manufacturing, aviation, shipbuilding, and power generation, and to expand social services all around. There's a lot of great proposals in this third part, like the public housing piece that I mentioned. There's also a demand for the state to hire a million care workers to provide free child care and elder care to the populace. These, well, at least by U.S. standards, are political demands. I mean, they're affecting the lives of workers, but not simply about wages and benefits, about job conditions. I mean, these are far-reaching social demands. Definitely agree. This is a huge step forward for the workers' movement in general and for KCTU, who are endorsing these demands of these kind for the first time. Let's talk about the KCTU, its history, how it got started. I've had several occasions while in South Korea to be at workers' picket lines, at workers' sit-ins. One time in the early 2000s, I think it was in 2001, a very long, protracted sort of sit-in by workers in auto. Anyway, let's talk about the KCTU. Does it have legal status? What are its origins? Let's just talk about the history. Definitely. KCTU does thankfully have legal status. They were first founded in 1995. It now has 1.1 million members, which makes it the largest of the two union umbrella organizations in South Korea. About 50% of those members are irregular workers, and they come from sectors as diverse as public transit and metallurgy to school and hospital staff. KCTU also has Korea's only union for migrant workers. Now, to place it within the context of labor history in South Korea, the counterpart to KCTU is the FKTU. The Federation of Korean Trade Unions, which I realize is not a very different name. The FKTU was founded under the Park Jong-hee dictatorship as a workers' organization closely allied with the state. Today, KCTU is the more progressive and militant of the two umbrella unions. It started off as an illegal entity in the 90s before it was given official recognition because of the power of the movement that it built. KCTU has played an important role in South Korea's people's movements since the 90s, from fighting against the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement to spearheading the movement in 2016-2017 that brought down former President Park Geun-hye. In that period, another general strike was organized by KCTU that lasted about a month. With that said, KCTU is very important to contemporary Korean politics. In South Korea, there is still a law on the books called the National Security Law, which virtually outlaws socialist politics. In that kind of environment, an organization like KCT is important because it represents the agenda and the power of millions of workers. I think that a speech that Kim Yong-un, an irregular worker in the power generation industry who spoke at a rally in Seoul yesterday, 
encapsulates the importance of KCTU and its organizing very well. He said, and I quote, we are not here to remain victims of our society, but to become agents of change in our lives, unquote. Yeah, very impressive. What's the orientation of the KCTU towards the current Moon Jae-in government in South Korea? And of course, there are elections coming up in South Korea next year. A lot hinges on those elections. But obviously, this is a more progressive government compared to some of the other political parties. And yet the workers are in the streets today because the social conditions exist today, meaning that however progressive or liberal the current Moon Jae-in government is, it's obviously not disturbing these kind of facts of how capitalism is organized in the context of South Korea such that workers are suffering so much. Agreed. The government under Moon Jae-in is still a bourgeois government through and through. Moon Jae-in came to power through the candlelight movement, which took down Park geun as I mentioned. KCT had a very central role in that. He, like a lot of progressive candidates in you know capitalist democracies around the world, came in on lots of promises of correcting a lot of the social impacts of neoliberalism, particularly a promise to address the plight of irregular workers. It's been four years, and you know, to offer a brief summary, he has basically failed to deliver on that promise. So the KCTU and you know the workers movement is rightfully placing pressure upon not only his administration, but also really taking this moment ahead of the elections to bring labor issues to the fore once again in an effort to really emphasize just how dire the situation is. I think in terms of their relationship to the Moon Jae-in government, well, the Moon Jae-in government has been actively attempting to repress the strike. Um, the president of the KCTU, Yang Kyung-soo, is currently sitting in jail, along with about 30 other organizers. So I think that's probably a pretty good illustration of what that relationship is looking like these days. Right. So the police tried to very brutally suppress the main demonstration in Seoul that took place on Wednesday. Can you tell us what happened? Yes. So on Wednesday, over 20,000 workers rallied in Seoul. They gathered at the National Police Headquarters and then they marched to Seodemun Station. Uh, police deployed 171 units, which is about 10,000 officers, to try to block the strikers. There hasn't been much detailed info shared about the police conduct on that day, but KCTU did release a statement explaining why they held the rally in a street intersection. They said it was to avoid, quote, unnecessary clashes with the police. Some Korean media have reported, quote, scuffles, which I think we can infer as likely police instigated. The Seoul Metropolitan Police have also already announced an investigation into the strike organizers on the pretext of violating COVID safety protocols. So I think we should definitely point out that KCT organizers were very careful to ensure that every participant could socially distance, even though they were outside. Mask wearing is a very normalized behavior in Korea and has been since before the pandemic. The use of COVID security protocols as a pretext has been used as a very common tactics against organizers during the pandemic since there have been related bans on public gatherings. I think we can expect that this whole police will find a way to file charges against the organizers. Yeah, that's so, so important for people here in the United States who are not getting really any information, certainly not from the mainstream media, to understand what Korean workers are up against. Again, just anecdotally, the last time I was in South Korea, I was attending a labor rally and the speakers were speaking from a sort of a makeshift stage. Perhaps it was the back of a flatbed truck. And about halfway through the rally, 
the police carried out this massive attack on the demonstration. I mean, people were fighting back. They were resisting, but the police came and just hauled all the organizers away. They arrested them. They basically dispersed the demonstration for almost an hour as kind of, I would say, street battles. But what workers were trying to do and their supporters was trying to just defend themselves and their right to be there. And eventually they were able to continue, but it was a rally that was, you know, held under extreme duress. I just wonder, is this common? Unfortunately, yes. South Korea has a huge police force and, you know, confrontations between demonstrators and riot police are a very common thing, actually. As I said before, there have been lots of other general strikes organized by KCTU in the past. Other progressive movements have taken to the streets for various other reasons. I think as an illustration of just how violent the South Korean police can get, during the candlelight movement, they actually killed a man by using a fire hose, which, you know, in the United States, I think, would rightfully kind of invoke memories of what happened in Birmingham, Alabama during the 1960s. And I think that's just a good illustration of the kind of tactics that are pretty commonly deployed by the Korean police, particularly when they want to tap down on a movement or an action that they consider to be particularly threatening. Let's talk about the South Korean economy. Obviously, it's one of the major economies in the world. It's always being held up as sort of a miracle until probably the late 1960s, the South Korean economy was behind the North Korean economy, which is surprising for a lot of people to hear, but that is actually true. But then in the 70s and the 80s, certainly in the 90s, the South Korean economy took off. It's like one of the bigger economies in the world, a real dynamo. And so one might think, especially the way sort of mainstream media reports on economic issues or workers' issues that the growth of the South Korean economy has been something that's very advantageous for all Koreans. But what you're describing is an economy that, while robust and dynamic and a major factor both regionally and globally at this point, the impact on the working class and the poor in Korea, but you know, when I say the poor, I'm talking about a vast part of the population. It's been anything but an economic miracle. Is that fair? I think that's absolutely fair. And I think that when we really look at the South Korean economy under a microscope, we start to see a very different story. After the 1997 financial crisis, the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, came in and imposed structural adjustment policies on South Korea, which included opening up its domestic markets to foreign capital penetration, and also privatizing a lot of what were previously public assets. In that rush, what essentially happened was US firms, Japanese firms, EU firms came into South Korea, bought up a whole bunch of cheap assets, and have never really surrendered that position ever since. So the South Korea we see today is a place of like glittering tall buildings and really high advanced technology. There are these you know, super conglomerate corporations like Samsung and LG that are known around the world. But when you really look at some of these companies under a microscope, you realize that some of them are essentially Korean in name only in that, you know, they can have 40 to 60% of their stock market value completely owned by outside firms, primarily from the US, the EU and Japan. So in a lot of ways, the South Korean economy today is kind of just a shell for imperialist investment, if we're being quite frank. And this radio show is probably 
a little too short to delve into too much detail about what the actual story of capitalist development in South Korea looked like. But to offer a very brief summary, it was inseparable from the U.S. war machine, to be quite frank. South Korea's participation in the Vietnam War is one of the major factors that brought it a lot of the investment and loans and market opportunities that later led to this explosive development. South Korea's own state management of a system of military prostitution catering to the occupying U.S. force was a major source of foreign currency during the 70s. The separation of hundreds of thousands of families and essentially the sale of children on the transnational adoption market was also another important source of foreign currency as well. So when we really delve into the details, we start to see less of a miracle and maybe a little bit more of a nightmare. We did a show about the origin of the Cold War and the development of the U.S. military industrial complex. And of course, Korea plays such a central role in that story. And one of the things that we were talking about is that October 18th in 1950, U.S. troops captured Pyongyang, the now capital of the DPRK, North Korea. And the next day, Chinese troops poured across the Yalu River, October 19th, in a counteroffensive that ultimately drove U.S. and South Korean government forces back below the 38th parallel. But as we were talking about that, we were doing some research and we were looking at the division of Korea from its inception, from the inception of the division. And one of the things that's so important for people in the United States who want to know about Korea or learn about the Korean people's struggle or the Korean workers' movement, and the two are co-joined, of course, is that when the Japanese government, which was the colonial power in Korea, all of Korea, surrendered on August 15, 1945, one of the conditions that the U.S. insisted on was that Japanese troops, the colonizing troops in Korea, stay in place until the U.S. troops arrived in September, about three weeks later. In fact, they did arrive. And then the U.S. sort of took over the occupation of at least the southern half of the Korean peninsula flew Sigmund Rhee from the United States to become the leadership in South Korea, later the president of South Korea or the Republic. And immediately, the government policies was to institute draconian measures against workers and poor farmers and the massacres at Jeju and in 1948 or the Bodo League massacres. I mean, from its inception, under the direction of the U.S., this government has exhibited all of the fundamental features of what can only be described as, as a military dictatorship. And so when we think about the rise now, of course, things have changed since the late 1980s with the formal introduction of formal democracy. But the workers' movement had to endure those kind of repressive measures, as did all of the people who were seeking social change in South Korea. Just help our audience that may not know that much understand the impact in terms of how the movement grew and what it had to endure and what it meant in terms of the leadership formation and the tactics that the movement had to sort of adopt in the face of those kind of big problems. Absolutely. I think you gave a very concise and very good history of what happened in that period. And I think it's just really important to place the workers' movement within that history. The kinds of repression that 
workers and other elements of the progressive movement faced for the better part of the 20th century in Korea is really quite unspeakable in terms of the levels of violence that were involved and also the really kind of far-reaching police state that functioned in Korea for you know the better part of 40 years. And as I mentioned before, a lot of the laws that were weaponized by that police state against labor movements and other progressive movements are still on the books, and they're still actively being used against workers today. Or really just, you know, even anyone who happens to do something like even read the wrong book while, you know, they're doing their compulsory military service. There's a lot of fanfare about, you know, how far South Korea has come and like the formal elements of democracy that now exist. But, you know, when we peel back the surface a bit, we're also able to see that there are some very disturbing continuities from the era of military dictatorship that continue into the present and really raise questions about who this government is really for. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about the political parties in South Korean politics that are closer to the movement of workers, especially the progressive movement, the KCTU. Of course, there was earlier the Democratic Labor Party. That was essentially suppressed and its leadership jailed. I'm not talking about in the 50s or 60s. These were more recent, pretty recent developments. But of course, every labor movement has to find some political expression in addition to workplace organizing or strike activity. Can you explain a little bit about the current politics of the different political formations and parties and those that the KCTU might be looking towards? Yeah, definitely. So I would absolutely say that the party that is probably most aligned with KCTU's demands is the Progressive Party or Chinwudang. The Progressive Party actually has historic roots with the New Democratic Party that you mentioned. It's a lot of the same leaders and veterans of that organization who, as you said, have faced some pretty serious political repression for their organizing, even in the era of so-called democracy. The national security law, which I mentioned before, has been weaponized to basically break up the kinds of dissent that you know these various activists have tried to form by creating parties of these kinds. But the Progressive Party is the current iteration that now exists. South Korea has a tendency to rename parties very frequently. Um, so for outside observers, it's actually a little bit difficult to keep up with things. But to speak in very general terms, South Korea does have a multi-party system, but is more or less a, a duopoly, wherein you have a conservative party and a liberal party. And the liberal party is you know, currently in power through President Moon Jae-in. The liberal party definitely has progressive elements within it, but you know, there's also many ways in which the party leadership is very much in line with what capital wants in South Korea, which often places it in alignment with the U.S.'s security and military agenda in the region as well. So in a lot of ways, it's very comparable to the democratic republican system that we have in the United States. But in the case of South Korea, the Progressive Party is definitely the one that is closest to the KCTU's demands and has also been helping to play a role in supporting the general strike. I think the best example of this is a couple of weeks ago, the Progressive Party's sort of outlet in the United States, Korean Americans for the Progressive Party, put together a webinar with the KCTU's policy director to basically raise awareness about the strike amongst Korean Americans and, you know, offer a platform to sort of like build international solidarity by focusing particularly on diaspora communities in the U.S. and beyond who would 
have foreknowledge of the issues, have enough personal experience to care, and you know have connections in other countries that they could leverage in order to build awareness and solidarity amongst others. I want to go back now, if we could, as we start to move towards the end. We're not rushing, but as we sort of get to the final segment of our conversation, I want to go back to the three demands of the KCTU. They're so important. Abolish irregular work, part-time temporary or contract labor with little or no benefits, and extend labor protections to all workers. Two, give workers power in economic restructuring decisions during times of crises. Three, nationalize key industries and socialize basic services like education and housing. And I'm looking at the demands because you summarize these demands in the article that our audience can go to, your article that's published as an op-ed in Truthout titled Half a Million South Korean Workers Walk Off Jobs in General Strike. I really want to encourage people, go to truthout.org, find your article share it with your friends, talk about it, learn about Korean politics. I want to ask you about the third point, nationalize key industries and socialize basic services like education and housing. You know, nationalization is sometimes conflated with a socialist, publicly owned, planned economy, and for good reason. But nationalizations also take place for all kinds of other circumstances, even within the confines of a bourgeois or capitalist economy, you know, during periods of emergency, during periods where a particular key strategic industry can't really function well or successfully within the confines of market forces. Even in the UK, you know, the center of Western capitalism for a long time, when the sun never set on the British Empire, it nationalized the mines until Margaret Thatcher denationalized them. The workers, you know, struggled hard to hold on to nationalization because they felt that in the context of that nationalization, there were certain protections and guarantees that could come not only to the workers, but to society at large. I want you to explain a little bit, if you could, why this is an important demand for KCTU, and does it resonate with other parts of the population? Yeah, I think it's certainly an important demand for KCTU. Just historically speaking, as I mentioned before, this is the first time that KCTU has had social reforms of this nature on its platform. And I think what that reflects is a rising level of workers' militancy and organization. And I think it reflects a rising level of consciousness around basically who the true enemies of the people are. When we look at South Korea's economy today, as I mentioned before, you have these large corporate conglomerates. In Korean, they're called chebol. Now, there are 64 chebol whose sales make up 84% of South Korea's gross domestic product. However, those companies only provide 10% of the jobs. What that means is that most workers actually work in industries that are secondary to the chebol and dependent upon them. So that's the relationship that monopoly capital has established in the Korean economy. That being said, I think this pandemic has really revealed all the ways in which the government and employers are not on the side of the workers. And, you know, workers realize that, you know, a lot of the main export oriented industries in their country have either been majority bought up by foreign interests or, you know, bought up to the level of a controlling stake. To use an example, in the automobile manufacturing industry, Hyundai is the second largest corporation in South Korea. 
It's also one of the largest car manufacturing companies in the world. It has a massive complex in the city of Ulsan where they produce 1.6 million cars a year. Hyundai itself, as of 2018, was 46% owned by foreign investors. So, you know, you have one of the largest Korean companies, one of the best known companies on earth. But when you really start to break down where the profits are going, it's certainly not going to the workers, but in a way, they're also being expropriated twice in that, you know, the money that's being generated by their labor doesn't even stay within their economy. It's going towards firms overseas. So I think the uh, push towards nationalization is really about workers demanding their share of the wealth that they create. And I think you're correct in that this is not the same or not quite the same as calling for a socialist planned economy. I think part of that is because the level of repression and anti-communism in South Korea is a very real force that organizers need to be very careful about contending with because how close they come to crossing that line basically determines how fierce the repression will be against them. But I think the fact that they're pushing for this demand now really shows that there are qualitative changes taking place in the workers' movement. Now, we can't say for certain where that will lead right now, but I think what we can see is that workers are fighting for their power as a class, and they're fighting for their share of the wealth that they create. And as they continue to build this kind of consciousness and power, the horizon of possibility can only expand. And I think that's a very exciting thing. Yeah, I just want to close with one final point of emphasis. Again, our listeners who are maybe learning about Korea for the first time, or maybe not the first time, but they don't yet know enough about Korea. When you're talking about the threat posed of repression for those who are identified as communist or socialist or vaguely friendly to the DPRK, North Korea, the North Korean government, under the national security law, I might be out of date on this, but in the past, even associationally, like if you were considered to be friendly to North Korea or friendly to those who are friendly to North Korea or anything like that, in other words, this level of anti-communism was so pronounced that it was punishable by 10 years in prison and thousands of people went to prison if they were considered suspect for having been friendly to socialism or to communism. And, you know, we in the United States think about how bad the witch hunt was in the 1950s and 60s, but it was a tea party compared to what people in South Korea actually experienced vis-a-vis the national security law. So just again, you mentioned it earlier, but I want to have an overview of the impact of the national security law and whether it's changed, whether it's been modified and how important it is as a tool of repression today. Yeah. I can't speak to recent modifications of the national security law. I haven't looked into that quite as closely as I should. But what I can speak to is the fact that it is still a very present force in South Korean politics and still a very real threat that organizers face. To use an example, there was recently a case involving a publisher, an 82-year-old man named Kim Sung-kyun, who was facing, I think, between seven to eight years in prison just for publishing the autobiography of Kim Il-sung, which, you know, Kim Il-sung has been dead for decades, and his autobiography is published in other countries in the world. But in spite of all of these factors, South Korean prosecutors still felt it was important to take a senior citizen and basically threaten him with what would amount to a life sentence just for the act of publishing the wrong book. So I think that's 
very instructive as to the reality that's still at play in South Korean politics and really the South Korean state's lack of qualms about you know, using any measures at its disposal to repress any kind of hint of a socialist movement developing. And I think that, you know, for U.S. observers, this may sound a lot like McCarthyism. And to that, I would respond, well, it is, you know, the McCarthyism that we know in the U.S. had a lot of origins in the U.S.'s policies in Asia at the time, particularly around the Chinese Civil War, around the U.S. military occupation of Korea and the installation of the South Korean state as an anti-communist government. So, you know, if this sounds like McCarthyism, that's because in many ways, this is what McCarthyism looked like with the addition of a colonial or a colonizing element where, you know, the kinds of protections that would exist within the core country did not exist. And then so there was sort of a more no holds barred approach to repression. And that's a story that repeats again and again, not just in Korea, but throughout Asia and the Pacific, throughout the third world, especially during the Cold War. And I think, you know, understanding these links is very important to understanding the state of the workers movement globally and the role that the U.S. plays within that as an empire. These are very, very inspiring worker struggles that are taking place against, you know, significant government repression. But what comes next? This obviously is the beginning of something, or if it's not the beginning, it's certainly not the end. What comes next? Yeah, it's certainly not the end. This strike is just the beginning of a series of national actions. The next one will take place on November 14th. It is a national labor mobilization. There will be another action in December, followed by an all-people's national mobilization in January. KCT was hoping to leverage these actions to influence the upcoming presidential elections in March. It's unclear what is next after that, but I don't think that KCTU is fixing all its hopes on the election either. Current President Moon Jae-in came to power on a similar wave of mass mobilizations, and over the last four years, people have seen him betray his promises to workers again and again. Workers recognize that the election is an important time in national politics, but as I said, they're also organizing and fighting for their power as a class. It's hard to say where it'll all lead, but I think that these are some very promising signs for the workers' movement in Korea. Well, we are very, very grateful that you were able to take the time to join us on this show, on the Socialist Program, to explain the struggle of the South Korean workers in this really impressive historic, in many ways, general strike of the KCTU. We were joined by Ju Hyun Park. They are a writer and member of Toll for Korean Community Development. You can check out their latest article titled Half a Million South Korean Workers Walk Off Jobs in General Strike at Truthout.org. And Ju Hyun, if people want to learn more about Toll, how do they do it and or about your writings? Uh, yes, if you'd like to learn more about Norutol, you can visit our website, norutol.org. That's N-O-D-U-T-D-O-L. You can also find us on social media at the tag at Norutol. Fantastic. All right, we're going to leave it right there. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back Tuesday. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Starting in November, video episodes of our Thursday show, The Real Story, will be available with our new partner, Breakthrough News, on youtube.com slash breakthrough news. We're excited that this breakthrough partnership will expand the reach of the show. 
We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 